0: are familiar with Early Rain Church. Y'all ever heard the heard the name before? If you've been following through the news, you, you might have heard it. Uh, <clears throat> I promise you, most of you, uh, I'll wager to actually say, uh, none of you have ever been to it since Early Rain Church is in the uh, Chengdu province of China. Uh, Early Rain Church is a non-government sanctioned evangelical church in the Chengdu province of China. And their pastor, our brother, is named Wang Yi. December 9th, um, following a crackdown of Chinese party authorities, Chinese Communist Party authorities on uh, unsanctioned churches, and Evangelical Christians, Pastor Wang Yi was taken along with his wife, Jiang Rong, and they have not been heard of since Sunday, December 9th. Uh, Over a hundred more members were arrested beginning that Sunday, and more have continued since the translation of the letter that I am about to read you. Uh, Pastor Wang Yi wrote this letter and gave it to the members of his church with the instructions that if he were ever to be detained for more than 48 hours, they were to release this letter. It is somewhat lengthy, but it is worth it, based on what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read this, and then we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. So without further ado, these are the words of our brother Pastor Wang Yi pastor of Early Rain Church in Chengdu, China. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people the freedoms of religion and conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to, and it is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest that the fact that the true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of an earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short. And God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China. To testify to the world about Christ. To testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven. To testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason... I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on the wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, listen to this. I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked and lawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must announce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or, any, or political activism in the form of civil disobedience, because I do not have the intention of changing any institution or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is not only to be the church and not become part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another, to another eternal world and to another glorious king. This is why I'm not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ and the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church, to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues discipling and building up his church, that I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power." For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I have devoted all of my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. If I am imprisoned for a short or long period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith in my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities in law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority. And that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie and temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Moreover, I must point out that the persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth there has only ever been a thousand year church. There has never been a thousand year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal earthly power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that He would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead, insinuating that he will not follow anyone who is not Jesus, because only Jesus can. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and for your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate All laws that violate God's laws. The Lord's servant, Wang Yi. We can talk all day long about what it means to recognize Jesus as king. But it's different hearing someone say Jesus is king whenever Caesar is about to execute them, isn't it? Please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, Lord, King Jesus, we pray that you would, we would respect you and submit to you as such this morning. And Lord, if there is any duel for allegiances in our hearts, we pray that you would win that today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we would leave here today invigorated and re-energized to go out and submit to you first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning I titled our sermon, Long Live the King. Because that is exactly what John said. I promise I will... regain composure in just a minute uh today as we look at this passage we should understand that the church was experiencing during the period John was writing this book something not quite unlike what Wang Yi and our Chinese brothers and sisters are experiencing uh in all likelihood, we talked about last week, the emperor of the Roman Empire was Domitian at this point. Um, he has been probably unjustly memorialized as a Roman emperor who was a persecutor of Christians. Um, there is no historical evidence that he led a persecution himself like his predecessor of, of around 30 years, Nero. But Domitian was certainly not a lover of Christians, he did not like them. Most Roman emperors did not. It was not until the Roman emperor Constantine that Christianity was even legalized. Christians were legally recognized by the Roman Empire as atheists and were often blamed as a reason that Rome was constantly set upon by what they called barbarians, and Christians were eventually blamed for the fall of the empire <coughs> because they did not not worship the Roman gods. Um, so even though Domitian himself may not have been the one persecuting Christians, in order to curry favor with Rome, larger cities who wanted Domitian's favor would persecute Christians. So our brothers and sisters of roughly 2,000 years ago um, were disliked and mistreated um, and often killed and imprisoned for their faith. And as such, it was difficult for them to keep their morale up. So, on the heels of this persecution and hatred and marginalization, God sees fit to send a message um, to the Apostle John by his son Jesus Christ. And that message is, in fact, the book of Revelation. And we are getting to a point uh, in the book, we have passed the introduction. And John is having an encounter with the exalted Jesus Christ. And this is his greeting this morning, um, based on that encounter with Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. Um, And Jesus introduces himself as the king of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so I want us to see today three uh, ways that we should relate to this king. Uh, three ways that we had, we should view him, and three ways that we should orient our life around the fact that Jesus is, in fact, king. So first, we should seek the pre, the peace of the Prince of Peace. The idea being that the peace that Jesus offers is better than the peace that one can receive from anyone or anything in the world. Look at verses four. In the first half of verse 5 that John says to the seven churches who are in Asia, these would be the immediate recipients of the book of Revelation. For all of the different trying to pigeonhole Revelation into different genres, it is technically what's called an apocalyptic. Um, That's a big 50 cent word that tells you it's a prophecy that's real hard to understand because it uses lots of symbols. Um, Despite trying to pigeonhole it into different genres, Revelation's a letter. I mean, that's literally what it is. Revelation is a letter written to these seven churches who were in Asia. Why these particular seven churches? Your big scholarly, academic, theological answer is I don't know. There were bigger cities with larger populations, but Jesus specifically had something to say to these seven. So John greets them with a typical biblical greeting when he says, grace to you and peace. Uh, this is a typical greeting for biblical epistles. This is the way every letter that Paul wrote began. Um, sometimes he added a couple things, but generally this is the way every Pauline epistle, which this is John. But I mentioned Paul to say this was a common way to start letters. It says grace to you and peace. This doesn't indicate that John is sending grace and peace. Does it? Because he says, grace to you and peace from. And we're about to be given a list of the, the one or the three, or maybe it's both, who are sending, who is sending grace and peace. First, we see that this grace and peace is coming from him who was, who is, excuse me, him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a mouthful, y'all. Him who is and who was and who is to come. If you go back, this is not on your handout, but you look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you'll find Moses asking God a question. And he says, God, suppose they ask me, who sent me? What am I to tell them? God says, you tell them, I am has sent you. That name in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. If you're reading a Holman Christian Standard Bible or potentially a Christian Standard Bible, rather than I am, you might actually see the word Yahweh. The word Yahweh is actually really nothing more than a conjugation of a Hebrew verb. And it means, you guessed it, I am, or potentially, I will be. It's a translation of the verb, basically exist. Now, why is it that God gives the name I am? Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time that you were not? Yes, or has? You know, somebody told me this morning, they said, Josh, you got any gray hairs? I said, yeah, probably because I, I turned 30. I'm ancient now. Um, walking into my Sunday school classroom this morning and somebody had written on the board, Josh, how old are you now? Whoa. I was like, Thanks, guys. Um, somebody said, you probably got some gray hairs now, don't you? I said, yeah, I probably do. And I can tell you when every one of them started growing, they started growing on July 14th, 2017. That's when they started growing. Um, that's roughly 18 months ago at this point, I think. Um, but at any rate, there was a time when Margaret was not. And you can go back to 1989. There was a time when I was not. And you know what? There will be a time when I am not. Won't there? We had a lot of funerals the last two or three weeks, didn't we? Okay? That, that... there is a time when I end. Now, I understand I am a a two-part being, that there is a physical part of me and there is a spiritual part of me and that that spiritual part of me will live on when this body dies, but I am not eternally existent by my own power. Okay? Every single one of us can say the same thing. That there was a time when we began... And there will be a time when this physical body ends. Do you know who the only being in the universe is that that is not true of? That would be God. He was, and He is, and He will be. He's the only being in the universe that can say that. Y'all all going to leave here and hopefully get some lunch, right? Right? What happens if you skip lunch and dinner today? Will you be here tomorrow? Yeah. You might not be as happy. But what happens if you skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next 150 days? Will you be here? God could skip lunch for the next 1,500 days. He'd be exactly the same as he is right now. He was, he is, he will be. That God is. This statement of John is referring to the Father. That grace and peace comes from the Father. Second, we get our first weird moment in Revelation. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne. What in the world? Now we've all heard of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? Anybody ever heard of the other six Holy Spirits? Why in the world are there seven spirits before this throne? Who is this? Is there there divinity we've never heard of? Is the Holy Spirit actually divided into seven parts? Are there seven of Him? The answer is no. Uh, Remember I said Revelation is apocalyptic, which means there are lots of symbols in it? This is our first one. Uh... This is numerical symbolism. Let me read you an entry <clears throat> from the Holman Bible Dictionary. is on number systems. This is about seven. In addition to their usage to designate specific numbers or quantities, many numbers in the Bible came to have a symbolic meaning. Seven came to symbolize completeness and perfection. So, so men, those of you who were in Sunday school this morning, how many times did Jacob bow when he bowed in front of Esau? He bowed seven So, him bowing seven times, that's a symbol of complete, whole, and utter subjugation. That's why he bowed seven times. And there are a few more. God's work of creation was both complete and perfect and was created in seven, and was finished in seven days. The Sabbath was the day of rest following the work week, reflective of God's rest. Israelites were to remember the land and give it a Sabbath, that's seven, permitting it to lie fallow in the seventh year. Seven was also important in cultic matters beyond the Sabbath. Major festivals such as Passover and Tabernacles lasted seven days, as did wedding festivals. In Pharaoh's dream, the seven good years followed by seven years of famine represented a complete cycle of plenty and famine. Jacob worked a complete cycle of years for Rachel. Then when he was given Leah instead, he worked an additional cycle of seven. A major Hebrew word for making an oath or swearing, Sheva, was closely related to the word seven, shiva. The original meaning of swear an oath may have been to declare seven times or to bind oneself by seven things. So when you see seven in the Bible, that should prick your ears up and wonder, okay, did somebody count a literal seven things or am I being given a symbol of completeness here? So when you understand that John says the seven spirits who are before his throne, he's not saying there are seven Holy Spirits. He's saying that the completeness and wholeness of the Holy Spirit dwelling before the throne of God is also wishing you grace and peace. So the Father wishes you grace and peace. The Spirit wishes you grace and peace. And then finally, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus also sends grace. In peace. But he doesn't just say Jesus. He also gives him some descriptors. He says that Jesus is the the faithful witness. The word for witness in Greek is the word martis. Does that sound like anything? Not like Walmart. How about like martyr? Yeah. Martyr. Martyros. It's where we get the English word martyr. It's also the word witness. translates out to witness. But the reason that we call a martyr someone who dies for a cause is because they bore witness of what it is that they were there for. Did Jesus die for a cause? He sure did. He died to accomplish the mission his father gave him. He was the faithful witness. He was the faithful martyr. Second, we're told he is the firstborn from among the dead. This is chronology and in rank. That not only was he faithful as a witness, when he was crucified to accomplish his father's mission, did he stay dead? No. No. He was the first one to be risen to die no more. And he is also the first in rank among those who will die no more. Greek word would be prototokos. Proto, first, prime. First in rank. And then finally, he's not just firstborn and ruler over those raised from the dead. He is also ruler over kings of the earth. So if you're these early believers, you've got to be thinking grace and peace. You got some nerve, John. You you exiled on an island yourself. You're in prison. How in the world can you send me grace and peace? And he said, hold up now. I'm not the one sending it to you. I sure can't tell you grace and peace. I don't have any grace and peace to give you. But somebody does. How about grace and peace from the one who was and who is and who will be? Who's not concerned about something as short-lived as the Roman Empire? How about grace and peace from the eternal Holy Spirit who dwells in His fullness, not only before the throne of God, but if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, that fullness of the Spirit dwells in you. And what about from Jesus Himself? Someone else who was also persecuted for faithfulness to his father. Someone else who was also killed. For maintaining what he said. And what happened to him? He's now the firstborn from among the dead. And ruler over all the kings of the earth. Yes. Even over Domitian. Yes. Even over Nero. Yes. Even over the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. Even over anybody else who decides they want to persecute Christianity. He's going to outlive them. He's going to outlast them. And he's going to overpower them. He can give you grace and peace if he feels like it. So John says that's who's offering you grace and peace. Now, isn't that good that God can offer you grace and peace even when nobody else on earth can? Y'all, I hate to tell you, if you're waiting on grace and peace to come from Washington, D.C., you're going to be waiting a long time. You see people pulling their hair out. Oh my goodness. So-and-so's in Congress. So-and-so's in the White House. So-and-so's on Supreme Court. So-and-so's in the governor's mansion. So-and-so is my boss at work. So-and-so is my kid's teacher at school. What am I going to do? They're not going to... Stop it. They were never your source of grace and peace anyway. And if they were, you got your eyes looking in the wrong direction. You might end up with a ruler like Domitian. He doesn't care enough about you to persecute you, but he's certainly not going to stop if somebody else wants to. He's not going to give you grace and peace. You might end up with a ruler like they had under Nero. Which, by the way, when, when Paul you know, was telling you to submit to the ruling authorities in Romans, you know who was probably emperor when he wrote that? Nero. Do you know what Nero is famous for? Nero is famous for inventing ways to kill Christians. He burned them alive. He threw them to the lions. He made them props in gladiatorial spectacles where they were there for nothing but to die. Might end up with a ruler like that. But Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Psalm 73, 26 uh, and 27, My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That when you look and you keep somebody save me, somebody give me peace, somebody give me a minute to breathe, somebody help me get through this. Why can't I? Listen, y'all. There is no earthly power that is going to give you grace and peace. There is no earthly good that is going to give you grace and peace. Your job won't do it. Your vocation won't do it. Your vacation won't do it. Your vocation won't do it. Your government won't do it. Your retirement won't do it. Your doctor won't do it. Now, everything I just said replace the don'ts with can'ts. They can't. And I can't do it. I've been in ministry now as a vocation for coming up on eight years. July will be eight years. Five years as a youth pastor and July will be three years with y'all. Time (laughs) flies, doesn't it? It'll be three years with y'all in July. Over my eight years even as short of a time as that is, I've had people come to me before and basically want me to tell them something was okay. To pronounce grace on them. To pronounce peace on them. And I've had to tell them, I can't do it. I can't give you that. I can't tell you it's all going to be okay. Because I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. If you come to me and tell me, Josh, I'm sick. I need you to tell me it's going to be okay. On this side of glory, I don't know that. But I can point you to someone who says, sickness can't touch me. It can't touch what I can do for you. The loss of your job can't touch what I can do for you. Nothing on this earth can touch what I can do for you. God can offer you grace and peace. The real king can offer you grace and peace. So don't seek it from somebody else. So seek the peace of the Prince of Peace. And second, seek to serve the King of Kings. Look at what John says in the second half of verse 5. He says, To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. (coughs) This is actually a miniature doxology. I mean, if I say doxology, you're probably humming it in your head already, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. You've got it in your head, right? The reason it's called the doxology is what it begins with. Praise God. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. So doxology is the giving of glory. So when John is saying all this, the key to what's happening is in the last half of verse 6. Where he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The word dominion is actually the Greek word kratos. It's, a, it's related to the word given for judge. And Jesus is the one who calls the shots when everything's over. Glory to him and authority to him and power to him and rulership to him and dominion to him. And John just puts that on the end. And before he even gets to it, he spends the rest of that paragraph telling us why. So let's look at that and then see what he's actually saying. First, he says to him who loved us. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's central to Jesus' identity to his church. First and foremost, y'all, Jesus is not to us a teacher. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a great leader. He's not just an educator. He's not just a great example. That first and foremost, Jesus' identity to the church is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. If there's no cross, there's no church. If Jesus had come and just taught good lessons his whole life and then went to be back with the Father, we'd have been in the same boat that we were in when he got here. Knowing what we should do, but not being able to do anything about the fact that we can't and won't do it. That Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now... I do want to point out that some of you, do do any of you have a different word other than washed in this verse? Maybe freed or loosed or something like that? If you do, this is the reason why. That older manuscripts do not have the word washed. They, they, They have the word which means loosed. Or freed. In other words, you were bound up by your sin. You were held captive by it. And Jesus loved you so much to come and free you from that, even if the cost of that was his own blood. And we're told this is not on your handout, but in Philippians 2, you can go read verses 5 through 11 and see that Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, has been given the name above every name, and that is directly in relation to His sacrifice on the cross. His rulership and His sacrifice have always gone hand in hand. That Jesus' work, to be blunt, Y'all, that's why we love Him. I love Jesus because He loved me first. And I know that He loved me first because He died for me. But this is not about my love for Jesus. This is about Jesus' love for us. This is a doxology. This has given Him glory. And one of the reasons He's worth that glory is His love. And then second, He's made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Salvation's not all Jesus did for us. We've also been made a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. Do any of you have anything other He has made us kings? Maybe you have He's made us a kingdom. Okay, the reason you have that is because the oldest manuscripts have a singular word there. That Jesus has not just made us kings. It's not like he's given you this elevated status as I am a ruler now. Bow before me. Jesus has made me a king. No, he's made us a kingdom. How am I confident this is the correct translation? Again, not on your handout, but you can make a note. Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. Listen to what God told the children of Israel. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that God has ever made His children is found in Jesus. What does it mean to be a kingdom? It means you're united under one king. And to be a kingdom of priests, what does that mean? Well, what does a priest do? A priest, simply put, is a servant of God. Now we can talk about A priest being a a go-between between between God and others. But what happens if there's nobody to go between? What if it's just God and His priests? Well, then the priests serve God. In fact, there's a lot of language in the Old Testament that defines the priests exactly like that. That they served God in His temple. So for Jesus to be glorified, for making us a kingdom of priests, To his God and Father, John is saying, look at what he's done for you. That he's taken a bunch of you who had no relation to God, who couldn't even stand in his presence, and now not only can you stand in his presence, God brings you in, says you're a citizen of his kingdom, and doesn't ever want you to leave his presence because you're a kingdom of priests to him. There's debate (coughs) over where this quote came from, some people think that it was Charles Spurgeon. Some other folks think it, it might have been another guy. But at any rate, it's a good quote. I like it. It um, says, if God's called you to be a, I'm just going to say minister, because some records of the quote say pastor, some say missionary. If God's called you to be a minister, don't stoop to be a king. There is no higher calling than to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. You know, my undergraduate degree was in public relations. I remember when I got to Grady at UGA—that's the College of Journalism and Mass Communication—within my major. When I got admitted to Grady, because you—you got to get in to UGA, and then after a couple of years, you got to get into your major, right? So when I got into Grady, they had all of us say, "Here's what we want to emphasize." And we had the big Grady, new Grady people meeting. And they had everybody in the room. They said, okay, everybody that's public relations, stand up. So we stood up. And they said, okay, all y'all come over here. So we went over there. They said, everybody else, raise your hand. Okay, yeah. So since you're in the group that's not going to get a job. I was like, oof. I'm in the good group. <laughs> you know, how's that? Do you know why I'm not working in public relations today? It's empty. I have no idea how much I, I mean, I know what the average salary for a, a manager in public relations is. It's not low. I don't want that. Because there's no higher calling than serving Jesus. This is my dream job right here. What I'm doing right now. This is it. This is all I've ever wanted. This is all I'm going to want. Because there is no higher calling than serving Jesus. And the same is true for you. He has made you, if you've called on Jesus Christ, He has made you a kingdom of priests to Him. Serve God. There's no higher calling. Since Jesus Himself walked the earth, men and women have had to make a decision as to whether or not they wanted an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one. They've had to decide whether or not they wanted the favor of an earthly king or a heavenly one. They've had to decide whether or not they want to build an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one. Revelation tells us, this book tells us, that a time is coming and to a degree already is in which your allegiance to Jesus will be tested. Your allegiance to His kingdom will be tested. Which king are you most concerned about? The earthly kings who can give you earthly goods and an earthly kingdom? Or the heavenly king who has called you to be part of His kingdom and priests to Him? You've got to make up your mind. And by the way, Don't let certain rulers fly under the radar. Did you know your kids and your grandkids can be your kings and queens? You laughing at me? I'm laughing, Josh. They can't be my king or my queen. Sure they can. Have they ever dictated to you what they were going to do? Or what you were going to do for them? And then you just feel like you got to? Hey, guess what? You don't. Your allegiance to Jesus trumps your allegiance to your kids and your grandkids being happy. Josh, get up. It's time for church. I was at a band competition until three in the morning last night, Mama. Yep, and you're gonna be at church until noon today. I'm tired. You know what the lot of looked at me and said? I don't care. Do you know why my mama did that? I was not her king. That there was going to come a day when I was 18 and I could make up my own mind as to whether or not I was going to be in church or not. But that day was not that day. I was under her roof. It was her rules. It was her house. And as for her and her house, she was going to serve the Lord. And that meant that as long as I was under her charge, I was going to serve Him too. Parents, grandparents, who's your king? They can tell you no. Guess what? You can tell them no for a lot of things, too. But they'll be mad. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Jesus answered, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Psalm eighty four ten. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. Who do you want to serve? And then James 4, 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And finally, extremely briefly, I'll read verses 7 and 8, and this will take us into our invitation. John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That is Jesus' way of saying, I am the beginning of everything and I am the end of everything. There is nobody who was here before me and there's not going to be anybody here after me to turn out the lights. I am the first one. I am the last one. This verse is a direct throwback to both Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So you can go make those notes if you want to go look. Daniel 7, 13 and Zechariah 12.10. That this is almost a direct quote of a combination of those two verses. But there's a slight difference. In Zechariah 12, 10. I'll actually go back there so that you can hear it. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now there's a difference between Zechariah 12 and Revelation. In Zechariah 12, it's the children of Israel finally realizing because God has poured out a spirit of grace on them that they missed Jesus the first time and they need to repent. But in Revelation chapter 1, this is not a spirit of grace. This is fear. This is not a repentant realization of who Jesus is. This is a judgment realization of who Jesus is. That these men and women have finally realized they have spent their entire life serving the wrong king. They have spent their entire life seeking the wrong rewards. They have spent their entire lives wasting themselves on the temporal, on the earthly, seeking favor of those who will die and turn to dust. They have spent their life seeking the good of things on earth that will turn to dust. And now they look on him whom they pierced and they realize it has all been a waste. That they spent their time on the middle and not on the alpha and the omega. As a result, there is no reward for them, they have their reward. Jesus says, Matthew 6, verses 1 and 2, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. Do you want the praise of people? Do you want the favor of people? <clears throat> Do you want the good of the earth? I'll tell you who tempts you with that. Matthew 4, 8-10. through 10, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Y'all, Satan's playbook has not changed in 2,000 years. He looks at you and says, if you will bow to me, I will give you whatever you want. If you will bow to me, I will give you political power. I will give you community clout. I will give you financial security. I will give you that promotion at your job. I will give you that relationship that you want. If you will bow to me and just do things my way, I will take the pain out of it and it will be easy. The only thing is, if you've got to abandon allegiance to the one true king to do it, whatever it is you are seeking will crumble and burn and turn to dust. And one day you will look on him whom you pierced and you will mourn because you will realize there was too much in the middle and you didn't focus on the Alpha and the Omega and you will regret that decision one day. So what, what now? What do we do now? I'll tell you what you do now.